This is Takeaway Only, a podcast about the hospitality industry in crisis. I'm Howie Kahn, and these are the stories of the people who take care of you. Today's guest is Andrew Zimmern, chef, restaurant owner, and host of What's Eating America on MSNBC. Andrew's new show kicked off with an episode about immigrant workers in America, and we'll be continuing on that topic today. These are the workers who plant our seeds, harvest our crops, and make our restaurants hum. During this pandemic, it's more important than ever to understand their circumstances and protect their place among us. We're back tomorrow with an all-new guest. Please hit subscribe so you don't miss it. Stay tuned now for Andrew. Andrew, hi. Hello. I want to run through um, an important topic for you, an important topic for me, an important topic for all of us. I want to talk about undocumented immigrants uh, in the food service industry and what coronavirus is is doing and what havoc it's wreaking in, in their world. Uh, it's um, a monstrous topic, and it's it's um, it's one of the the places in this entire. Um, epic tale that is going to get worse. I mean, we're sort of writing this Shakespearean six play uh, mega event sort of as it's going on. Like, right, we're dealing with this in real time. It's the first global tragedy that we've really ever been able to to do this with. Uh, The age of social media and intimacy with things like Zoom and pod to be able to reach out and grab people and then disseminate that information right away means if something is happening in the Philippines, it can be on everyone's uh, phone in a matter of seconds, right? So uh, it's shifting all the time. But here's the general problem. The, the coronavirus pandemic, this global pandemic, is revealing in in black and white every single day why uh, the mistakes that we've made over the last 30 40 years right so all the chickens come home to roost in times of big crisis that affects everyone one of the biggest areas is immigration a ball that has been passed from president to president talking now from a perspective of the united states um, for 40 years Republican and Democrat, everyone has tried to tackle immigration reform and it's just too difficult and you can't get anyone to agree. And, you know, without debating that whole mess, the end, the net net of it is that we've been paying the price for a lack of immigration reform for decades and nowhere more so than with the people who are working in our food system. And now that we are in a food crisis that's associated with this global pandemic and an employment and economic crisis, it is underscoring in stark reality why we should have been paying attention to this for a a long time. And here's sort of where we stand uh, today, right? Um, The vast majority of restaurant workers uh, live pay to check, uh, pay to paycheck to paycheck. They uh, lack health insurance. They don't get paid sick leave. And for the people who are in the the most vulnerable population, right, um, 
the, the bottom 40, 50% of those who are mostly hourly workers to begin with, because of our system, and this is especially true with immigrants, documented and undocumented, visaed, et cetera, they have been disincentivized over the last three years from showing up at a clinic if they're feeling sick or calling in to work to say, I'm not feeling well, I can't show up. And the reason is, is that for many of them, they're scared out of their minds that if they go to an emergency room and they put their name down and whatever documentation they have, legitimate or not, they're going to get swept up in some kind of government raid and they're not going to see their kids again. Number two, they're going to lose their job and their housing. Because remember, for those millions of workers, many hundreds of thousands of which get rooming in an association with the uh, job that they're getting. So it is it is a it is a net net dis oh and then there's the demonization from the White House right where uh, we have been uh, calling these people names horrifically for years and we documented this in What's Eating America uh, asking all of these incredible human beings that are feeding us how does it make you feel and they told us how it made them feel they were shocked they were shocked. Uh, because they're they're honest taxpaying workers. You know, remember to collect their paycheck, those taxes come out of it and go to our schools and our roads and all the rest of that. The two greatest ironies to me are are this: number one, the people who have been denigrated uh, by so many in this country for so long are now deemed the most essential of workers, along with our healthcare providers, by the Department of Homeland Security of all places. Of all places. A, a perverse irony, if ever there was one. And uh, I mean, all you have to do is flash back a year to take a look at the, you know, any front page in America and see how perversely ironic uh, that is. Um, and the second one is, is one that I'm just obsessed with these days. How is it that a nation that can destroy this planet over and over again by a factor of about a thousand with all of our investments in weapons and bombs and military and defense is unable to feed its citizens or protect its supply chain by any one of a dozens of mechanisms. This is the perfect time for there to be national leadership. I mean, I'm not holding my breath, but there could be no more perfect time than for the president to get, get up there and instead of firing Captain Crozier or uh, terminating the IG uh, who was working on the whistleblower case, actually paying attention to what's really happening in our country and coming out and saying, you know something? We have an immediate amnesty for everyone who's uh, a food worker, uh, undocumented, you know, let's, they're getting amnesty right now. What a perfect time to do that so that we ensure that those people, if they're not feeling well, get the medical help that they deserve. We should package up some kind of uh, temporary health insurance for them that could then be carried over like a COBRA setup where they are going to get then extended uh, health care and make sure that the people who are putting food on our plates uh, are able to keep doing so because 
we're seeing a seismic shift in where the food is going in America, right? So uh, 80% of, I think I have this right, 80% of uh, the food um, in America right now is being uh, purchased at grocery stores. Now, that number used to be about 50%, uh, two, three months ago. And the reason is, is that, you know, restaurants, schools, everywhere you can get food outside your home where someone else is cooking, it is basically now offline. So the distribution model is skewed. We have enough food in America. People should not be that scared. There's a billion pounds of frozen chicken, I think, just in the state of Arkansas alone. We're coming into planting season. Uh, another issue, by the way, that affects immigration. We'll talk about that in a second. But the simple fact of the matter is, is that we have this unwieldy distribution system where the food that was coming from farms, I mean, you've seen pictures, I'm sure they started to roll out last night and today of just the piles of yellow and green, uh, yellow squash, summer squash and green zucchini um, in the southeastern United States just being dumped onto the ground because there's no one to pick it up and carry it somewhere and no place to to put it. All the distribution places are packed to the gills because guess what? The one food people are not buying in the last couple of weeks, land rush to stock their houses, fresh produce. And so while everyone is baking and cooking food at home, we don't have enough people buying all the fresh produce that went to uh, all those restaurants and institutions. Think of tomatoes, right? I mean, they come on every sandwich in America. They come on every hamburger in America. They go everywhere. The, the, all, I, I think it's some absurd fact, like 80% of the tomatoes are all taken up by food service and institutional groups. Um, that's, a, that's a striking thing. So the waste in America is rising as we figure out the distribution model to take the food directly from the farms and instead of bringing it to the hub where it goes out to all the different uh, supermarkets or the hub that it goes out to all the restaurants, we're actually able to take that into the places where human beings can access it. So that includes, I'll give you an example. Over the last 30 years, we've built up this incredible sort of like uh, farm to restaurant community. Uh, Howie and Andrew decide that we're going to uh, take our vegetable farm and, our, and start a chicken farm and, a, uh, and raise some trout the right way. And we're going to sell this into restaurants all up and down uh, the eastern uh, New England, right? Um, and we make a very nice living for your family and my family. Well, the minute the restaurants go offline, there goes our customer base. So a lot of places, uh, like our hypothetical farm, is selling direct to consumer, right? That's why you see places like Chef's Garden, Farmer Lee Jones's place in Ohio, or DeBraga and Spittler, or all of a, a boutique New York City uh, beef company, a meat company, um, are now really pushing. A lot of farms are trying to get online and go direct to consumer. Um, because they have their distribution point strangled. They no longer have the, or, or sorry, they have their, uh, their customers are cut off and they don't have a distribution point to get into grocery stores. So they're going direct to consumer. A lot of restaurants, you, you've probably heard this term, are turning into community resource kitchens with a grocery component. Uh, I know Edward Lee's Lee Initiative is a, a big 
proponent of this because it, it's what Ed started with that first night in his restaurant where they basically took all the goods out and sold them to employees and whoever was in the neighborhood. And it was all gone overnight. And he realized, oh my gosh, we can be a hub for better product, right? So we sort of have to rejigger our entire system and take care of the people who are putting the food onto our nation's plates because every single plate of food in America is touched by the hand of an immigrant. This is not a problem for America to solve. This is an opportunity for America to seize. A Jose Andres quote. Most definitely. Um, I want to just throw some numbers out right now so people can understand the size of the population we're talking about, right? In California alone, and these are numbers I'm taking from your show, so thank mm-hmm. you. 91% of California crops are, are worked on by immigrants. Yes. Or ni- I'm sorry, it's 91% of California crop workers are immigrants, not 91% yes. of the crops, although I'm sure the number is closer to 100% <laughs> of the crops. Yes. Um, in terms of undocumented workers in U.S. restaurants, the number that's published and, and out there is 1.3 million. That's an estimate, and I'm sure it's more, maybe double, maybe yeah, triple. People, people have to remember, let me just interrupt for a second, just underscore, uh, f- Farm owners, restaurant owners, other business owners are not the police, and we're not Customs and Border Patrol. We are required to take information from workers and submit it on a form, and even if we're a part of the E-Verify program, it's up to the government to get back to us to say, oh, that's not a valid social security number, or oh, that person isn't who they say they are. So continue. The bottom, the bottom line is these people need to be at their jobs, or else we're not going to eat. The restaurants aren't going to be clean. The dishes aren't going to be done. The strawberries aren't going to be picked. So when you're talking about Howie and Andrew's uh, trout and vegetable farm, it would have been nice if some of that those goods that we're dumping by the side of the road because we can't get them to our former restaurant customers were maybe part of something like, you know, the family's first uh, coronavirus response act and every immigrant got a box full of vegetables on their front door to make sure they were eating healthy food during this time. Instead, yep. what we got were two bills, that first one I mentioned and the CARES Act that the ACLU calls xenophobic and racist in regards to immigrants, and the National Immigration Law Center um, said basically failed those communities 100%. We have failed the immigrant community in America since before the founding of this country. I, I will use the founding of this country as the starting point historically, even though it predates that, because you technically can't have an immigrant arriving to a country until you actually have a country. But this is, it has been said a thousand times, this is a nation of immigrants. Unless you were a member of the First Peoples, any one of the hundreds of First Peoples tribal groups uh, in in America, um, you are an immigrant. And to, to demonize that group in this country, of all countries, is the most shameful and, and it's, it, it has now become, I think, a, a criminal offense, especially when it comes to people like the DACA workers or the folks who are, you know, dr- driving the trucks to get PPEs to the hospitals, right? I mean, we, we, we're, you and I are talking about, you know, how it affects the food community, but undocumented workers are everywhere in our system. And especially when it comes to factories that are packing goods and things like that, anywhere that you find um, uh, low-wage hourly workers, those are those first jobs that are snapped up 
by uh, undocumented workers in this country, and sometimes marketed a- as such by uh, by company owners who are looking to uh, skirt the issue. Because remember, if you have undocumented people in your system, you can attempt to, as we found out in our show and and uh, in a meat business in Tennessee, pay them off the books. Um, unsafe work environments are uh, part and parcel of this whole system. The Sinclair Lewis model uh, from 100 years ago is is alive and well here in America. Okay, so undocumented immigrants, if you really boil it down, keep us alive, right? Yes. They, they, they are working for our very survival. We should be having ticker tape parades for them daily. Mm-hmm. New York yes. City should be parading them down Broadway with confetti raining down from the sky and putting money in their pockets everywhere and, and we go. Let me, and let me, let me point out, as you know, this is not just because it, the, the mythology is that we're just talking about people who are harvesting vegetables in California's Salinas Valley, where 40% of America's produce comes from. But these are people working in meat factories in Tennessee, chicken plants in Arkansas. They're picking crabs in Maryland. They're working on scallop boats in Maine and uh, you know tuna boats off the coast of California. They're literally onions in, every, in Ohio, peaches everywhere. in Georgia, apples in Michigan, 50 everywhere. states, 50 kinds of immigrants. Everywhere. everywhere. And, we had farmers in Tennessee in our show. I'm talking about small family farms, three, four acres, literally tell us that without the two or three workers that come to them via the guest worker program, one of the visa programs here that's available in America, they could not harvest the food. Because remember, it takes a skilled worker, incredibly skilled, skilled. underscore skilled, mm-hmm. uh, to harvest food, which the current administration classifies as a specialty crop. Food fit for human consumption is a specialty crop. All the other stuff are, you know, recipients of crop insurance and all the rest of that stuff. The whole system is skewed away from how we feed people to begin with, not just how we take care of the people who are doing it. So at a time right now where there are not just hungry people in America, but now we are growing that number of of hungry people every single day, um, it, it just becomes extremely important and underscores and highlights the damage that we've done uh, to this community. If, if, if we don't take care of them now, then, then when? Okay, so what's not going to happen is that thing coming from the podium during the press conference where the president mm-hmm. says all these people are, are taken care of, all these people's immigration right. status is, is granted. Not, not going to happen. What it is a great time for is for other leaders to emerge from within this movement and from like-minded movements surrounding it. So who's going to be Cesar Chavez and what can we do to help? I think... A really interesting dynamic is emerging over the last uh, two weeks, and that is the incredible vision and leadership that's coming from our nation's governors and mayors of its biggest cities. Um, and I'm gonna I'm gonna blow this number, so maybe you have it in front of you. But like, if California was its own country, wouldn't it be like you know? top 30 in population and like top 15 in GDP, something, something ridiculous like it's, that. It's, it's the California economy is very large. It's, it's massive. And approximately 40 million people. Right. If I remember my math. Um, so when you see people like Gavin Newsom and Mayor Garcetti 
uh, in Los Angeles, uh, getting out in podiums and talking about uh, the issues of the day and what they're doing, they can take this states' rights thing if, if, if the Fed and the White House uh, want to keep pushing stuff onto the states, um, it's a very, very dangerous game because the, the federal system is there to you know, deal with international trade and uh, defense and protecting the country, the homeland and all this other stuff that is tasked with it. And they have abdicated a lot of that responsibility. So you don't want to start throwing everything back at the states and then we're essentially a, an ungoverned nation of 50 municipalities of different types. California, I just I just looked it up, is the fifth largest economy in the world. Fifth largest economy in the world. So they've got some clout. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, the state of New York, I'm sure, is right up there mm-hmm. in terms of economy. And you see incredible leadership coming from uh, Mayor de Blasio and Governor Cuomo. You may, you may not agree with it, but they're getting out there. They are telling the truth, the good and the bad. And they are doing everything they can to create a plan, stick with that plan, and move with that plan. And that is, that's what's missing. So I actually think, and you see the same thing, I mean, look, in, 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 in Michigan and Ohio, and I'm not trying to just say New York and California are doing a great job. You're seeing it in dozens of states all around the, uh, all around the country. And um, I mean, look, uh, the governor, I'm blanking her name, is it Governor Whitmer? In Michigan, yes. Michigan? My home state. Uh, is all of a sudden turned from a who is that woman She's to star. everyone knowing who she is mm-hmm. and you know potential vice presidential uh, uh, candidate um, because she is so so uh, eloquent and such a doer on scale with all those other governors. Remember, our governors are incredible managers, right? And so I believe that we're going to see uh, governors turn to state legislation to protect workers as our growing season moves forward. Right now, I mean, there's a, Salinas Valley is productive nine, 10 months a year because that valley tricks mother nature into thinking it's late spring all year long. Uh, but they, they have a fallow, a downtime. Uh, the South is starting to get productive, right? Uh, obviously the deep South is already productive right now with produce. Um, but the, the Southern uh, belt of farms coming online right now and in the next couple of weeks and then spring and the season, everything just moves North. So we are going to see, uh, I mean, our state here, we're about as uh, North as it gets right in Minnesota. We our governor right now, we're a dairy state. We're also the number one producer of turkeys in America. And our governor is looking into ways to protect uh, the industries here that are so vital to the state economy, right? We have farmers here and in Wisconsin uh, pouring milk down the drain. Now, while that's wasteful, cows have to be milked. You got to get the milk out of the cow, but then more milk is created inside the cow. So while it's wasteful, it just, we have enough pasteurized milk in the system, they really just don't have a choice. You know, chickens can grow a little older or they can be harvested and frozen. Hogs can grow a couple months older, right? Uh, it's it's going to change some of our food system for four or five months when that food enters the system. But they can be, they don't have to be harvested. But that means those farmers don't get the income at all because no one's buying the food until the food we already have is sort of taken 
uh, off the uh, shelves and out of the distribution centers. So this really presents a conundrum, most importantly, most importantly for the people uh, who are farming fruit and produce. Because strawberries, they, they come out of the ground, you can't refrigerate, they die in a refrigerator, right? So they have to be refrigerated for a short amount of time and quickly brought out to the distribution hubs. Um, and it's a horrific, horrific impact to our system to see all that food go to waste at a time we need fresh food more than ever. Remember, this country spends $1.4 trillion a year battling the top four food-related illnesses, right? Like cardiopulmonary illnesses, uh, types one and two diabetes, et cetera. So to the extent that we can improve the American diet, get more fruits and vegetables out there at a time where people are now at home cooking, this is an incredible golden time to be seizing on that, actually change the dynamic. If we're able to shift that, right? I mean, because remember, $1.4 trillion, if, if we can just shift that 20%, that's $28 billion? you know, savings. And we've just, we're giving out trillions of dollars and rightfully so in these tranches of relief. It would be great to be able to save money in other places and we can do it through food. It would be great to work on food security by not wasting things either. I mean, it would be that is correct. really wonderful to see somebody with resources. Just, just takes one billionaire. I mean, come on. Well, Step we're, up. you know, we hope you know, Jeff Bezos just started, gave $100 million, I think, to an Amazon food fund uh, that people are applying for. I, I as, as horrific a uh, leadership vacuum as there is in Washington, D.C., I think we are seeing miraculous stories from all over the country um, of people doing their best uh, to help out and do things for, uh, for other folks. Um, I'm really, I'm really warmed by that. Me too. What are some of the ways you've seen uh, in terms of restaurant people taking care of undocumented workers who can't get unemployment even though they pay taxes? This is, this is a very interesting sort of topic, right? Uh, technically, they can't even get employment. Correct. But if their paperwork clears at a restaurant, submitting the forms the right way, and they clear through E-Verify, they may very well, right, be classified as documented, even though they're technically lacking proper documents. There are restaurants, I'm sure they're, you know, we don't, we do the E-Verify system uh, at my place. Um, but there are places that are paying cash to people who they know are undocumented, and you are correct. The publicly undocumented workers cannot receive uh, uh, unemployment. I've seen GoFundMe pop GoFundMe's pop-up. I know South Philly Barbacoa, some other restaurants. Yes. And this is Christina Martinez and her husband, Ben, have been doing it. You know, they are two of the most um, outspoken on that issue. And, and important. I think restaurants are taking care of their own in that way. But that's where the horrifying lack of equity in our food system and our restaurant system is showing itself uh, and, and, and embarrassingly so right? Because we have this large percentage of workers who we can't take care of, who have been taking care of us, which is why we need to have comprehensive immigration reform. This is not a restaurant issue. This is a globe, this is a national issue across the board. And it would fix a lot of issues within our restaurant system as well. I think one of the silver linings on this, at least I'm praying that it's the case, 
is that as the years go by in the post-corona-19 era that we will enter into at some point, that we will find that it was during these months that incredible social justice works uh, started. That we now, we've been trying to talk about fixing our restaurant system from an equity standpoint for four or five years now, really heavy duty talking about it, right? The conversation has been there for quite a while, but it's been really top of mind the last four or five years. Um, I was hoping that we could take our house apart brick by brick and put it back together the right way. Instead, this C-19 thing burned it all to the ground. Now, when we put it back together, let's make sure that we're putting it back together where we all win when we all win right? That this isn't just about feeding the 1%. It isn't just about restaurant owners, you know, who, by the way, don't make a lot of money. I mean, the vast majority, vast majority of independent restaurants are still living, you know, in a three-week cycle. They don't have more than, I think the average is uh, three weeks of uh, backup money, um, which is why relief, comprehensive relief from the federal government to keep the restaurant industry alive is so, so important and why I was uh, very much for helping to co-found the Independent Restaurant Coalition. Um, we are fighting very hard on on policy in Washington, D.C. to, you know, fix four really large issues that exist in our, you know, restaurant world right now, right? We want to fix the Paycheck Protection Program. We want to create a restaurant stabilization fund. We want to make sure that we create new tax rebates so that restaurants can survive post-crisis. And we want to uh, require business business interruption insurance um, to include uh, C-19 coverage. Those are our four big policy planks that we're working on uh, right now at the federal level. Um, We have an opportunity here right now to remake this system. I mean, restaurants aren't going to reopen for a couple months, right? So in the time that we have, wouldn't it be great if we could also deal with some kind of temporary immigration reform in some niche areas that could then be uh, templates for comprehensive immigration reform later. And I think the best place to start is in our uh, restaurant industry and in our food production uh, and supply chain system. I mean, this is those are the places that we can start doing that tomorrow because they're in a state of flux right now. And we, we are desperate for restaurants to reopen that restaurant culture to be there when this is all over. And so these, you know, 10 million people have 11 million people have jobs to come back to. And in terms of our food supply chain, well, if there's not food in markets, you play out that string and ultimately at the end of it is social unrest of some kind. I mean, that's just historically what has happened. I like the idea of restaurants influencing immigration policy. I can see uh, sanctuary restaurants, right? Yeah, it's. I mean, you know, look, there already are sanctuary restaurants. I mean, you named one of them, South Philly Barbacoa in Philadelphia has like famously, because they have an undocumented immigrant who owns the restaurant uh, in Cristina Martinez have been sort of the the sound that the clarion call for it, you know? Um, As a designation though, not as something that's kind of, whispered about, right? Yeah, I, I, you know, I, I think it'll be interesting to see how people respond uh, in the weeks ahead uh, to this. Um, obviously, restaurants have to make up their own minds about what they're willing to risk. Um, but I think it'll be very interesting to see how that plays out. 
one thing I'm seeing is that so many people are willing to take a stance. So many people are fighting. I'm so proud of the restaurant community. They've, yeah. they've, they've gathered their forces. They have Congress's attention and, uh, you know, bang the drum louder. Andrew, the show's called Takeaway Only. I'm wondering what your big takeaway is as a leader and as a human from the last several weeks. The biggest takeaway for me is um, I would have to say the the lack of leadership uh, coming from the White House. Um, This was always the worst case scenario for many people uh, when we elect any president. How can they handle uh, a true crisis? And it was written about for three years uh, with our current president. Wow, hasn't been tested, hasn't been tested, hasn't been tested. Um, Nothing really rose to that sort of crisis level. And now, faced with arguably the single greatest crisis that any president has faced um, in a century or more, um, that complete lack of leadership at the federal level is uh, showing its um, it's just showing how many glaring holes we have that we need government for, you know, for, I don't know, since the Reagan era and then moving into the Clinton era when Newt Gingrich popularized that, you know, sort of anti big government stance. Um, we've been making government smaller, 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 smaller. Um, this current president, you know, gutted, more departments and more places than you could ever imagine. And I mean, the list is, is large. And now we have the bad small government that so many people prayed that we would never wind up with. Um, so I think that's, that's, the, biggest, that's the biggest takeaway. Um, right up there, real close, I'll give you a, a 1A and B, is uh, the capacity uh, for the human heart to take care of so many others. I'm, I'm, I see it every single day, how many people are giving, giving, giving. Um, I, am, I am just absolutely touched by it in, incredibly. I am too. I, I see, you know, the faces on the screen every day when I'm doing the show and I just kind of see these beating hearts pulsating at me and, and uh, saying wise words, uh, including you. Andrew, thank you for your time. Thank you for, you know, becoming an advocate for such amazing things and, and using your platform to investigate and explore and speak up for people who don't have a voice. I appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you, my friend. Have a, have a nice day. That was Andrew Zimmern. You can follow him on Instagram at ChefAZ. Coming up tomorrow, Nikki Gritschka from Refetorio Gastromotiva in Rio de Janeiro, Brazil. Thank you so much for listening. Takeaway Only is produced by Casey Kahn, Rob Corso, and me, Howie Kahn, for Freetime Media. Our logo is by Reynald Philippe at B-Poles. Music by John Palmer. Special thanks to Kristen Millar, Antoine Ricardou, Raphael Weil, and to the whole team at Welcome. Check out their important community building work at welcomeconference.org. We're back tomorrow. This is Takeaway Only.